Hi, I'm Wade Ierly, and this is Rebuilding the American Dream. In this podcast, we introduce you to thought leaders who are shaping the lives of the next generation to discuss the challenges and innovations influencing higher education and how we can adapt to give students a strong foundation for their futures. Today, we're speaking with Dr. Walter Kimbrough, president of Dillard University in New Orleans. A native of Atlanta, Dr. Kimbrough earned degrees from the University of Georgia, Miami University in Ohio, and a doctorate in higher education from Georgia State University. He's enjoyed a fulfilling career in student affairs, serving at Emory University, Georgia State, Old Dominion, and Albany State University. And in 2004, at just 37 years old, he was named the 12th president of Philander Smith College. In 2012, he became the seventh president of Dillard University in New Orleans, Louisiana. Dr. Kimbrough has been recognized for his research and writings on HBCUs and African-American men in college. Recently, he's emerged as one of the leaders discussing free speech on college campuses. Dr. Kimbrough is well-known throughout the United States higher education system for his social media savvy, and he's been featured in several publications highlighting his success and engagement. He's a 1986 initiate of Zeta Pi chapter of Alpha Phi Alpha fraternity and has forged a national reputation as an expert on fraternities and sororities with specific expertise regarding Black, Latin, and Asian groups. Dr. Kimbrough, thank you so much for joining us today. No problem. Thank you for having me. So you've had the opportunity to study, work, and succeed at most, some of the you know, oldest and most storied universities in the country. Can you tell me more about your experiences rising through the ranks and some of the successes which you're, you're most proud as they relate to higher ed? And I start off as, you know, big state school boy at University of Georgia, which we still claim is the oldest, I think. But I went to Georgia because I wanted to be a veterinarian is one of the top three vet schools in the country. So I got into vet school actually early after my junior year. And so I had enough time to get in there and realize that's not what I wanted to do. So spent two quarters in vet school, but it all went toward my degree. So being there and in Miami of Ohio, which we always say is older than the city of Miami. So I went to these places with these unique histories. So <laughs> Miami is one of those places too. I had a great experience there. And that's where I sort of figured out I could work in higher education. I sort of learned that at Georgia when I told someone I wanted to be a president, they said, go get a master's in college student personnel. I didn't know what that was but I had a chance to go to Miami and really figure out what I wanted to do. So I'm forever thankful to be in the cornfields of Oxford, Ohio for a year and a half. That was great. Um, but like I said, then I've worked at, you know, urban commuters like Georgia State and Old Dominion, or I don't know, I guess Albany, Georgia is like maybe 60,000 people. So it's a sm small town, residential HBCU. And then I've worked at two um, small urban institutions in Little Rock and here in New Orleans. So I've seen a range of different places and, have been able to sort of fit in at different places in higher education. So I really enjoy that. I think at this stage in my life, I'm probably more of a city person because I got a family. So I don't think my kids would want to go live in the cornfields of Ohio. So that's probably out again. Sure, sure. Not until they finish high school. But um, yeah, so I've just done a lot of different things, a lot of great institutions. Um, so it's been a good, a good experience. That's great. Now, one of the things you are most known for uh, or where you stand out among your peers is certainly your social media savvy, right? Engaging with students and faculty. And, and, and I know you've spoken to other academic leaders on how they can use social media, et cetera. How do you see that engagement shift through the pandemic? And further, how do we you know, implement, like what, what are the best practices that higher education institutions should be put into place? Yeah, I, you know, social media, I think for a lot of places is an easy and free way to communicate a message in terms of what's going on, I don't know if I use it that much in the pandemic. I mean, we're still sharing stories like we normally would. Some of the other innovations we've used more, you know, people are using a lot of the online platforms. I mean, two years ago, people weren't, I mean, I was, well, I was using Zoom and Skype for some classes I was teaching going back 
probably about five or six years, but not on a massive scale. And like, you know, Zoom has now become like a verb. We use that and I use it personally as a way to communicate with students and parents, particularly when we were making the decision for fall of 2020, whether or not to be in person. So that worked extremely well. So that was just trying to use those, the, the platforms that were available to get more information out. Uh, social media, you can share some things as well. But I always tell people too, even if the student contacts me via social media, I, I still want the the face-to-face -face engagement as well. It becomes a tool to bring together the conversation and not to try to, as some people try to do, have the conversation via 280 characters at a time, because I don't think that works well. Um, so those are, so like I said, it's a tool, it's you know, good information, share information all through the pandemic. There are other things that are happening nationally that people need to pay attention to. That was really good too. As somebody who likes a lot of technology, yeah, I haven't always been a fan of people doing a lot of online classes for higher ed. I think it works for maybe non-traditional students. But, you know, my daughter is 15. She did her freshman year of high school all online. And we were talking about this the other night. She was like, because she was watching the news and they were talking about school systems shutting down. I mean, she was miserable. It was, yeah, hard. Yeah. It was, it was she was at home with the dog. Whereas my son went to a private all boys Catholic school. They went every day all year long. All they had to do was wear a mask. He never complained. He had the time of his life. So I just, I had two, I had experiment in my house. Yeah, and yeah. So I just know even for our students, when we made the decision to come back, they were saying, I I know I need to be there. You know, it depends on their living, particularly with college students and all the, the research about food and housing insecurity. Mm -hmm. You want to be at the place where you can take that off the table. So it's like, I don't care there's a pandemic. I, tell me what I need to do. I need to wear a mask. I need to have a single. I'm going to do whatever. But home is not a good place to be. So I yeah, need to be yeah. a builder. So those but, are the kinds of things that are really important. And you've had good success at Dillard engaging students and alumni. What do you think has led to that success in particular at Dillard? So I circle back then and say, that's when social media plays a really good role, particularly for alumni, because if you're sharing information about the institution that they didn't know, and particularly all the good things that are happening, people get excited. So we're able to drive up our alumni giving percentage, because if I, you know, I tell people this, it's really easy. Google has a function, a Google news alert. And every time Dillard University hits on the news site, I get an email about that. And a lot of times there's some alum somewhere that I have never met that has done something great. You put that on Facebook where most of your alums are and they love it. It's great because now you're recognizing they're like, oh, I didn't know so and so was doing that now so they can get reconnected. And so now they have a different kind of feeling about the institution because you're recognizing people that they went to school with. So it makes them feel good. Uh, it's good for the institution. And so then when it's time to, to give and those kind of things that helps. So I think social media is great for overall advancement, particularly when you use it to celebrate alums. You know, I do a lot of that when students are doing something really good. And, I, you know, some people are shy. I say, well, I'll blow your home for you. You just send me the link. Let me know what you did and I'll tell everybody. And so they figured that out. That's what I do. I, I love doing that. You know, it's a it's a great thing to do. That's great. President Kimbrough is the hype man. Right. My, oh, look, I, look, I'm going back to the days of MC Hammer and the two big MC. I want to be the two big <laughs> MC. I, that's my I role. It. For this part of my job, that is my role model, because all he did was hype up MC Hammer and the crowd went crazy. So that's that's what I want to be. Well, you know, I, I mean, that's going to be one of my takeaways from this chat, because it's such a simple, easy thing to do. It's so positive. All you're doing is sharing good news with people. It's, right? it's, like, I, I try to tell and particularly because social media so many times is just a cesspool and just meanness and all of that. 
It's like, no, I'm not doing that. It's tell me something good. And I want to share good news. And you're mentioned in a newspaper article. And I've even had like parents find out stuff from social media and the child didn't tell them. And it's like, <laughs> I got to find out from the president that you did X, Y, and Z. I'm like, that's fine. I, you know, so those are the kinds of things. This, I think is a positive. Everybody feels good about where they are. And, and you start to attract attention from media and journalists who want to do things and foundations will check out your feed and say, you're doing really good things. We got this grant opportunity. People don't understand that we've got money because of things that we put out on social media. That, that attracts yeah. people to say, you're doing great things. How do we do things with you? It's a great tool. I think people miss out on not using it enough. That's fantastic. I saw just recently some new data dropped on, uh, on Black student enrollment, especially at HBCUs. And prior to COVID, it was on a, a strong downward decline. I understand at a number of institutions this past year, there's actually a good spike in students sort of staying home and finding, finding home and, and, and a comfortable place at a number of HBCUs. But how, how do you think we engage and re-engage Black and minority and other sort of underrepresented students? How, how do we focus on that as an industry a little better than we have historically? So, you know, what has happened, I, I think over the last 10 years, the number, the total number of Black students in higher education has actually declined. And that's been a conversation that people aren't having enough conversation about. You know, it's, I mean, over the last couple of years, the even though the number, the absolute number at HBCUs has declined, the percentage of students, Black students going to HBCUs has actually gone up because that decline has been less than the overall decline. Okay. So, you know, it's like, what is, what's going on? I think some of it, particularly when you start to see the numbers from last fall, there was a big drop in, in higher ed because of COVID. I think there's going to be another drop. We're looking at some of our numbers now. A lot of it is just financial. And that's the challenge that higher ed has. It's like, it's a very expensive industry. You have lots of people with post-secondary degrees. The more degrees you have, the more money you want to earn. You have an older population. You don't have any mandatory retirement. So then your health costs go up. It's an expensive and it's, you know, it's, it's hands-on. So it, those costs keep going up and you have a population that can't afford it. That's yeah. just one of those conversations that we've got to try to get our arms around. And so, like I said, some people thought the efficiencies would be just have a thousand people in the class. You can have one person teach it from one place and it can be much cheaper, but that doesn't work. That's not going to move the needle. That's not going to help people graduate. They're not going to be engaged. That's why the, the whole MOOCs, that thing never took off. So toss that out. It's expensive. So how do we figure out how to do it in such a way? Are there ways that we can fund it better? I don't know what that answer is, but that's the conversation that we have to have because you, in all of higher education, there has been a, a decline for a decade, and this fall will probably be the same. You're starting to see some people pop back up, but there's still a lot of people hurting financially that will not be in school this fall. You know, I, this is where I spend all my time is on helping students who, once they're enrolled, make it all the way through to graduation. That's, I, I think we have a, a lot of work to do in, in keeping kids and helping them persist all the way through. And, so I looked at why, you know, why kids drop out. Eight of the 10 top reasons for why they drop out is some variation on, I didn't think it was worth it anymore. And it's phrased in a variety of, I couldn't afford it. You know, in the end, there's a place at which the federal government will give you enough money to go to school. The question is, you're 10 grand in debt now. Do you think if you're 20 grand in debt, it's going to be worth it when you graduate? And there's, there's certainly a lot of public narrative right now as we've eroded trust in all sorts of public institutions, but higher as well about whether or not it is worth it to send your, your child or, or to go, right, as a first-generation student. And yet, 
statistically, you and I both know it's an unequivocal win. Of course, you should go. Right. It's a, like it works, right? It, it more than pays for itself. So, how do we restore that faith, and and how do HBCUs help in fighting that narrative that unfortunately is particularly strong in a number of minority communities around the country? Yeah, people ask the question of the value because they can't afford it. I think it's as simple as that. It's particularly during the pandemic. I think people have seen when they're trying to do all this distance stuff that you miss out on some of the learning and the opportunities that happen outside of class, but in that physical environment. So there's, I mean, research that goes back that says, you know, 75 to 80% of what college students learn, they learn outside of class. So Mm -hmm. there is value in terms of having the relationships with the faculty, working on research with them. It's not just taking a class. It's all the other things. It's being involved in the student organization, student government, those are all those are skills that are part of that entire experience that, you know, the empirical numbers still come out The Cinderella Georgetown published some recent numbers. If you go to college, you're going to make more money if you complete it. It's, I mean, but I think at the time when you're fighting to pay for what you have and you know you need to try to work two jobs and go to school, it's like, man, this school just isn't worth it. I got a job. I'm doing OK. I'm just going to yeah. do that. And I think they just it becomes a practical decision for people to say, you know, I just can't do it all. So at this point, it's not. And I mean, what we're seeing, though, is that you do have more people who are going back to college to try to get those degrees, you know, later on. So I think that that's part of the narrative, too. At that point, it was too much going on. And they're just like, let me take a break. And then they come back later and say, I've hit this ceiling in my career and I need that credential. And so now they're coming back. So that's when we talk about even the traditional college student, that 18 to 24 year old is not the majority of people in college. So it's, you know, that's the other part of it that I think we got to keep thinking about is that people aren't necessarily, I think it's framed as people don't value college. I just think at certain points in their life, they have to make the decision that right now I can't do this. But there are so many people coming back that yeah. they still realize there is a value. But just at that point, they couldn't do it. Yeah, it's a difference. It's, it's a short term pain. And right. so I, I'm going to give up the long term win and I, maybe I'll come back to it. I can see that. Yeah. Speaking of uh, short-term pain, I, I read that you recently announced you're retiring. I'm not retiring. I'm just uh, I'm doing a you know I'm doing a free agent route. A free agent route, okay. A free so- agent route. So yeah, I'm too young to retire. I'm I'm just 54. So you know, a lot of times well, there's a lot of research that says presidents usually optimally stay seven to ten years, but the average tenure of a college president is going down. I, mm-hmm. I watch people that are leaving in one or two years. They get in, they're like. Oh, no, this is what I want to do It's, it's. I mean, it's more than a notion. So if you're somewhere, like I said, I've been at two places longer than seven years, which is today yeah. unheard of. People don't last that long in two different places. I think you, you, you do a lot. And then it's like, OK, so I want a new challenge. What else can I yeah. do? Can I go to a new place, learn new skills. So I'm still growing as a person, too. And I think you can get to a point. And I met plenty of presidents who stay places 20, 25 years, but they retired 10 years ago. And I don't want to be the person yeah. who retires on the job. It's like, it becomes, you know, some of the stuff now is just secondhand. It's, you know, we just know how to do it. And it's, it's really easy. But that, so, there's something exciting about a learning curve. What do you hope to do in the, next, in the time you've got left at Dillard? And, and then I'm going to ask a follow-up, which is, you know, what are those skills you think are most valuable in an incoming president? So one of the main things we're doing now is we partner with a major marketing and branding company because one of the things that we keep realizing is that we've got to continue to strengthen our narrative as an institution how do we start to pull all these things together to tell a stronger narrative to really be able to compete 
because everybody's competing for students who their parents have 529s, they got some money saved up, and you don't have to offer as much financial aid. So you got to have a really compelling case for somebody to say, I'm coming to this place and I'm willing to pay money to get there. So we're trying to work on that. That's one of the main things. And then we'll work on a new strategic plan that will help when the incoming person comes in to be able to look to say, at this point in time, for these three years, these are things that we need to shore up. And then they'll have time to build out the next strategic plan and say, okay, what's next after that? So those are two of the really key things. Um, we want to, I want to do at least 30% alumni giving this year. That's one of my big goals. The most we've done is about 23. We've done it twice. And when I got here it was 4%. So we've made yeah, wow. Herculean leaps in that, but I want to get to 30 before I get out of here. So I need some help doing that. Um, so those are some of the, the key things I want to be able to do um, this year. So as someone who's been a university president twice, like, like you said, more than seven years at an institution twice, you've been through that learning curve in a couple of places. What are the things that you think are going to make the next person successful or what, yeah, what should a university, an aspiring university president do, study or be aware of or experience that they have in order to succeed in the role? Right. I, I think the most, that first year is important, particularly in terms of coming in, learning the history and traditions of the institution getting to know the people on the ground, to get to know the alumni, to be connected in the community. Because if you can start off with a good uh, support system within that community, you'll be able to do a lot. And I think a lot of people make missteps coming in and saying, you're new to the institution. My vision for Dillard is X, Y, and Z. It's like, you don't know Dillard, you don't know New Orleans. Don't come in here trying to tell people what to, and that really doesn't work here in New Orleans. So, yeah. uh, and, and I'm from Atlanta, so we got the, the Falcon Saints beef. So, you know, everybody's looking at me crazy anyway. <laughs> um, but, you know, I came and told me like, I know how to be a president, but I don't know Dillard, I don't know New Orleans. And you have to ingratiate yourself and learn about where you are because that informs, there's just so many things you can learn to help navigate how to do that job well. So I think you have to come in with a student mindset. I mean, there are certain functional things that you have to do, but you don't have to try to, you know, do a million things that first year. You need to be humble the first year and realize you don't know anything. Okay. Learn as much as you can, start building relationships. People will tell you all kinds of stuff, and then you'll have an idea to say, all right, based on all these things here, this is what you're saying. Let me sort of package that, and now let's work together to do X, Y, and Z. I did that two places. I swear by it, I'm going to do it the next place as well. I'm going in learning. Speaking of learning, th this podcast is called Rebuilding the American Dream. And historically, I believe that the United States was the place where you get the best chance. If you came here, we're born here. Like if you got an education of effectively dying better off than the way you were born. And, and for 150 years, that was true. We were number one in economic mobility. We're not anymore. We're about 15th. And I'd like to see us return to that place where this is your best chance of innovating and finding opportunity, et cetera. What does the American dream mean to you? And someone who's had such success, I mean, you were a university president at 37 years old, right? So early in your career. And, and then you've spent now 14 years, you know, guiding institutions to help kids grab onto the ladder that is the American dream. From your vantage point, what does the American dream mean to you? What, what is it? You know, I think that, you know, it really should be an opportunity for anyone who's really willing to work for it. I mean, and it doesn't say that there aren't obstacles because I think part of the American dream is those stories of people who've overcome great obstacles even when those obstacles were created by the country. Actually I think about like civil rights leaders who did all those things. It's like they fought all kind of all kinds of things to get things done. The American dream doesn't just mean you come in and you work and there aren't obstacles. 
I think sometimes there are obstacles. I think that is a part of it that we're still as a country still struggling. In. And part of that dream is people who help us create systems and processes to, to help us be a better place as a as a nation. And I think that's a part of it. So it's not just about what you accomplish, but what can you do to push us to be a better nation as well? I think all of that is, is part of it. I think that's, you know, but it's, I think you got to have a mindset to say, you know, I'm willing to come hard, you know, come hard and work for what I need to, to do. And I know there are going to be obstacles and challenges, but I'm, I'm going to take those head on too. I think that's part of it for me. So with that, what advice would you give to someone who is contemplating college or their future more generally? I mean, college, completing college is a challenge uh, in and of itself. Um, but if there is an opportunity to do that, I think people have to go and realize, how can I get the most out of this experience? So it's not just viewing college as I go to class, I learn. It's like, no, it, I tell our students that you're not getting your money's worth. If you're going to do that, don't come to Dillard because that's too much money just to go to class. Are you developing relationships with people? Because I believe we're in a relationship economy. I was at lunch with and I saw a student who she's going to go to law school. She got a score. She has a really good LSAT score. I think she has a 4.0. She started talking about one of her dream schools, which is Georgetown. I was like, oh, well, the chair of our board graduated from Dillard. He went to Georgetown Law. He really wants somebody to go to Georgetown Law. It's not that she's not going to be able to get in. She's going to be able to get in. But he might know somebody to help so that the financial package is sweeter for her to go. So then there is a monetary value because this is someone very involved on campus, captain of our mock trial team. So somebody that I really know. So if you ask me about her, I can tell you all kinds of things she's doing right now. She coaches a mock trial team for the number one high school in the, in the state. Uh, she works at a law firm. I, I know who she is as a person. I can vouch for her. So there is a monetary, if he's able to help her get a better scholarship, that difference could make the, you know, help cover any cost she had here. Those, and people don't think about it like that. So it's a relationship yeah. economy that you get to know people, you get connected. Even when I went to the University of Georgia, I was involved. The person who was the advisor to fraternities there, we developed a relationship. I did my first national presentation as a senior in college. And that put me on the path to working in higher ed. It's about the relationship. That's, I, I think that's a, a part that if you go to college, don't look at it as I'm going to class, I'm studying, I'm taking tests, because that's not what it is. You got to do the other stuff that makes it worth it, because it's not worth it. If you're just doing that, it's not worth it. Dr. Kimber, I want to thank you for your time and your insights. I've, I've, uh, I've enjoyed getting to ask you a few questions today. Sounds good. Appreciate it. You've been listening to me, Wade Ierly of Degree Insurance, and this is Rebuilding the American Dream. Find out more on our website, AmericanDream.fm, or follow us on Twitter at Degree Insurance. Until next time, goodbye.